All right, good morning. Do we have any awake, alive people in here? Good. If you have your Bible, get it open, just pick a verse. They should pick a verse Sunday. I'm kidding. Go to John chapter 8. We're not going to read just yet. Um, I want to do a message that we've been doing back home, and it's something that's been in my heart. I was in South Africa just a couple of weeks ago, actually a month ago now. And on the flight home, I felt like the Lord began to speak to me about one word. The word is disruption. Say that with me, disruption. The word disruption actually means to interrupt the flow. It means to interrupt the flow of something. When something is going in one direction, so when you disrupt it, that means you interrupt the flow, you stop it. And today I actually want to talk about the mandate that we have from heaven to be disruptors. Now, we, are not dis- we don't disrupt things out of hate. We don't disrupt things out of malice. We don't disrupt things out of bitterness, resentment. We don't do it just to be angry and just to kind of stick it to the man. That's not, that's not how we disrupt. We disrupt things through peace. We disrupt things through thoughtfulness, poise, and precision. And today I want to talk about how history is filled with heroes. And one of the biggest reasons why they are heroes to us today is because they disrupted the norm. They disrupted the flow of something. Whether it's good or bad, that'll be left for the history books to tell us. But the bottom line is this. When you and I actually have a calling from heaven to disrupt, Jesus was the greatest disruptor of them all. He was the one that disrupted a momentum of sin and death. He jumped into the equation, the conversation, and with the cross, the death and the resurrection, disrupted the greatest, most negative momentum momentum in human history. Jesus interrupted the flow of that. So as we study his life today, we're going to take one story. I doubt we'll do two stories of Jesus, but we'll get to John 8, so don't read it yet. But John 8 is an amazing story. It's one of, becoming one of my favorite stories of this, of this conversation on disruption. But before we go to Jesus, let's take a look at some other people within history that were great disruptors. In America, one of our heroes is Martin Luther King. MLK, he's one of the greatest disruptors in modern history. He jumped into a conversation in the civil rights movement in the early, in the mid 1900s, mid to late 1900s, and he disrupted a conversation. He jumped in and paid a great price for it, and we all know that he was assassinated because he disrupted the flow of what was normal of that day. And one of the heroes of the civil rights movement was a woman named Rosa Parks. She refused to give up her seat on the bus. What was she doing? She was disrupting what was normal. She said, nope, I am done with this. I'm done with the color line. I'm done with the separation of white and black. I'm done with it. I'm sitting in this seat and no one can make me move. Little do we know, I don't know if she knew either, but she disrupted something that became a national headline. And to this day, she remained one of the biggest heroes of the civil rights movement. Why? Because she decided to disrupt something that wasn't right. You see, you and I as disruptors, people that bring disruption to humanity, to society, to the flow of something, why do we do that? What is the whole point of disrupting? Anything that does not look like heaven, you and I have responsibility to disrupt. When we pray that prayer, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth, what is that saying? That there is another kingdom, there is another reality, there is another norm. And that's the norm that you and I are by. We've been sharing this whole weekend at the conference that we are not strangers and foreigners, but we are members and citizens of the household of God. You and I have a citizenship from another place. I remember being in chapel in junior high and my dad preaching this message. And he looked at all of us 6th, 7th, and 8th graders and he said, you are not from this world. 
You are ambassadors from another place. You're ambassadors of heaven. So till this day, I just want to champion you. The Bible actually is explicit. It's clear and precise on this reality that you and I are from another place. That's why Paul says sometimes you feel like a foreigner in this earth, on this earth. Why? Because you become aware of another world, another norm, and you feel so out of place. In fact, I think it's normal for us to feel more out of place the more mature we get in the Lord. If we're feeling more not out of place, if we're feeling more comfortable in this world as we mature in the Christ, but I like to let's talk about your relationship with the Lord. Because the more you get closer to the Lord, the more you get exposed to His goodness, His kingdom, the more out of place you feel on this earth. That isn't meant to be, God, get me out of here. It's meant to go, you know what? I need to get whatever that norm is in my life on this planet now. So we actually have a mandate to disrupt. That's exactly what Jesus did. He disrupted. Another great hero. I remember the day that this man died. I could take you to the very place I was standing when this man died. Steve Jobs, founder of Apple Computers. Now you might ask, why would you cry on Steve Jobs' death? I have no idea. I was shocked at myself that I was standing there and I'm like, why am I crying about a guy I've never met? I've only seen him from a distance or on TV or in magazines or online. And here I am when I hear that he passed away. I remember standing there and I remember the person that told me, they said, Steve Jobs just passed away. Why would, I, why would I cry on a man that had no relationship with? Because he left an impact on mankind. He left an impact on humanity that affects us today. He did something radical. He disrupted. How many remember the commercial in 1984, the Super Bowl commercial? I know Super Bowl, one guy in the back. Awesome. That's great. Well, in Super Bowl, which is American football, is a championship game at the, in every February. And the biggest thing about the game, besides the game, is the commercials. In fact, my dad watches the Super Bowl only to watch the commercials. Because the, the, the expense that it takes to play a commercial, to play a commercial at the Super Bowl is I think it's up to three million dollars every minute. It's, it's, actually I think it's more than that. It might have been, anyway, it's some three million every thirty seconds. So people are paying, paying lots of money just to have a commercial. So they make these great, hilarious commercials. Well, 1984, Steve Jobs put together a commercial that basically was disrupting the computer industry. And if you've never seen the commercial, I would encourage you to go to YouTube, type in 1984 Apple Super Bowl commercial, and you will see a commercial that revolutionized an entire industry, and which is one of the main reasons why everyone had one of these devices or had this sticker on something. So Steve Jobs, what did he do? He disrupted the norm. He took something that was mundane, that was going in a direction, and he said, I have a better idea. I'm going to disrupt it. Elon Musk, the great South African man, he is disrupting the way we get to space. He is reinventing the idea of how are we going to live on another planet. Now, whether we believe we can live on another planet is a whole other conversation. But he is beginning to convince humanity there's a way to get to space quicker and cheaper, and we will live there someday. What is he doing? He's disrupting the norm of thought. This guy, he's sitting in L.A. traffic. If you've never sat in L.A. traffic, I'm sure just like London, it's horrible. You sit there, it's basically the biggest parking lot. And he's sitting in L.A. traffic, and he's mad that he's had to sit in all this traffic. And he thought to himself, what if I build tunnels all underground in this city, and that's how I get from one place to the other? 
So he had this idea, and now he's working on it. He's building tunnels underneath L.A., and you'll be transported, called the Hyperloop. I'm sure you've heard of it by now. And he's working on a system that you no longer have to travel on top of the ground. You can travel under the ground up to 200 miles per hour. What is this? He's a disruptor. He's looking at this is not how it should be. I'm going to disrupt it. I believe in many ways you and I are called to disrupt something. It may be something small. It may be something large. But in the end, we are called to disrupt. Another one, you guys have one of your great heroes, Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill, that guy was a disruptor in just about every way possible. Some of us are still recovering from how much he disrupted culture and society, but that's what he did. He stepped into a time in your history and honestly in world history and convinced the world that trying to make peace with Hitler was not the plan. He was to disrupt something. So Winston Churchill become one of the greatest world history heroes of our day and will continue to be known as that man. Why? Because he disrupted something. Not right now. You have Amy Simple McPherson. Amy Simple McPherson, one of the great revivalists in the early 1900s. Why was she one of the greatest revivalists? Because she did something so unconventional. She brought theater, music, drama, and sound into her message which was not what you were supposed to do. You are supposed to just have basic worship, someone preach, and that's it. She turned the church upside down in her day. She actually built one of the most beautiful facilities in the middle of the Great Depression of the 1930s called what? The Angelus Temple in Hollywood, in L.A. area. In fact, a good friend of our house, Matthew Barnett, now owns that building who runs the Dream Center. And that, and she is actually being run today. It's actually being taken back to its root. But she brought theater, she brought drama, she brought sound, she completely revolutionized, and she became a great orator. She became a great communicator of the gospel. And people flocked from all over the world, especially Hollywood, because that was their medium. That was their means of communication. What did she do? She disrupted the flow. So any type of theater, any type of drama that done in church today, we should be sitting there thanking Amy Simple McPherson because she broke the norm. She disrupted something that you weren't supposed to do. And because of that, she goes down in history as a very controversial person because she disrupted so much. But here we are in 2018. We celebrate, we read about her, and we cheer her on. It's amazing how much we cheer people on after they die. It's amazing how much we love people when they're long gone. But what can we do? Can we learn to embrace the disruptors? Can we learn to embrace the ones that think differently? Can we learn to embrace the people that looked at something? You know what? We can do better. We can do this way better than it was previously done. You know, one of the other great, I'm going to read this excerpt to you. This is from, it's roughly around the 14th century. So a device was created called the printing press. Now, the argument is still up in the air on who actually invented the printing press. But I'm going to identify one person that actually helped to make it a mass production device. And that was Gutenberg, the German. The German man who made the printing press in the 14th century. And what did he do? He created a way to mass communicate fast and efficiently. Now, what did this do? I have this excerpt I want to read to you to show you how much of a disruption that Gutenberg printing press actually created. In the 14th century, in Renaissance Europe, the arrival of mechanical, movable type printing introduced the era of mass communication, which permanently altered the structure of society. Imagine having an idea that permanently altered the structure of society. 
the relatively unrestricted circulation of information and revolutionary idea transcended borders, captured the masses in the Reformation, and threatened the power of political and religious authorities. Imagine being that guy. You threatened two of the greatest world powers, religious and political authorities. The sharp increase in literacy broke the monopoly of the literate elite on education and learning and bolstered the emerging middle class. And as many of us know, the Bible of that day was not translated into a common language. It still remained in the language of Latin. So all of us would have to go to a church, a temple, a synagogue of some sort to listen to a highly educated individual that understood the language of Latin, and you would get their interpretation of it. So when Gutenberg developed the printing press, they also translated the Bible into German, mass-produced the Bible in German, and all of a sudden the middle class and the lower class had access, at least the ones that could read. It actually encouraged literacy because now you could actually have something to read. And because of that, it actually took the power away from the religious authorities, and it took the power and put it into the power of the people. So we should all be very thankful for this man right here who developed this device. Why? Because now we had access to have a personal relationship with the Word, with Scripture, and obviously with our, with our Father. And so it's an amazing device that disrupted something that was normal. Netflix. How many like Netflix? Netflix has ruined watching TV. The other day I was in a hotel room and I'm watching TV and a commercial comes on. And I'm so disgusted with this commercial. I'm like, I don't want to watch any commercial. Why? I have never felt that way. Why? Because Netflix took all the commercials out of the conversation and it made you feel powerful because I get to watch it when I want to watch it. I can stop it and play it and finish it whenever I want. Netflix has forever ruined the way TV it even viewed. I watched, I put a DVD in the other day, and I almost forgot how to work the DVD. It made watching a DVD an archaic experience. Why? Because Netflix has forever ruined the way that we consume information and entertainment. In John chapter 8, let's read this story together. In John chapter 8, we have the context. Let me just give you quick context before we jump into verse 1. The preceding chapter, Jesus has had quite a heated discussion with the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's being accused of a bunch of things. The authorities are trying to get Jesus in trouble because they want to arrest him. They want to, you know, do take in the justice and their form of justice. And Jesus, as you know, is brilliant. He's articulate and he answers. And the officer that was supposed to go arrest Jesus, the Pharisees like, why didn't you arrest the guy? And the officer are like, have you heard this guy preach? He's awesome. Why would we want to arrest him? So there's some agitation. So Jesus, in the last verse of chapter 7, and everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Why did Jesus go to the Mount of Olives? Based on the the other parts of the gospel, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives to do what? To pray. I think he had a rough day and that he was getting a lot of heat and a lot of accusation. So he went before the Lord to recoup, to recover, to refresh, to be reminded of what he was all about. And then after that night on the Mount of Olives, we pick up in verse 2 of chapter 8. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said to him, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. 
But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Let's stop right here. So what do we have? We have a story of an adulterous woman that was caught in the very act of adultery. She was not caught before the act. She was caught not after the act, but she was caught in the middle of the act. Remember, Jesus is sitting in a setting much like this. Although the synagogue and the temples of that day were different in style and size, even the gatherings are ran differently. But for modernization purposes, I want you to picture this moment right now. Jesus is sitting in a room much like this, teaching people that were hungry to learn. And in the middle of his message, the back door flings wide open, and another pastor in town, of course, not a pastor from this church, but another pastor from another place in town, flings open their door and dragged a woman into the middle of the service. Now, crazy part about that, there's a really high chance that this woman had no clothes on. Why? Because she was caught in the very act of adultery. Maybe on the way out the door, she grabbed a sheet that she could cover herself. But imagine sitting in church that Sunday morning and a naked woman or partially naked woman is brought drugged down the aisle and brought to the very feet of Jesus in the front. Imagine that moment. Now, to be honest with you, this potentially might be very normal in this culture. Maybe not in that specific setting, but it was normal to see women thrown to the ground. Why? Because when a woman or a man committed adultery, the law allowed them to stone them. This was normal in that day's culture. This was normal in that day's time. So you know everybody in that room that had been alive for longer than 10 years most likely had seen someone stoned. Not just one, but many times before. So this was a normal cultural norm here. This was something that was legal and permissible. In the book of Leviticus, it says, any man or woman that committed adultery has the right to be stoned. So imagine sitting in that room that day. I bet you some young mom that had a couple two-year-olds that said, hey, we need to go to children's church now. Now the time to leave the room. Because why? You knew what was about to take place. Other people in the room said, oh, I don't want to be here. I've seen this before. I lost my mom to this, or I lost my grandma to this, or I lost my aunt to this, or I lost my sister to this very thing. And because of the trauma of what you've seen before, you had to leave the room too. And others stayed in the room. They thought, yeah, this is how justice works. This is how it works because when someone commits sin to this degree, we watch them get stoned. This is how we do life around you. What's my point in saying all this? This was a cultural norm. Not just a cultural norm. They had the legal right to stone this woman. That every right. No one would have shamed them. No one would have made them feel guilty. Why? Because it was in the law, it was legal to stone them. So you have this woman who caught in the act of adultery. Imagine the shame. Imagine the guilt. Imagine the weight of the world on her shoulders. She's not just brought in front of the religious authorities. She is brought in front of the Messiah. She is brought in front of Jesus Christ. Imagine the shame. I doubt she made eye contact with Jesus. I think she went to the ground and she wished it would all just end. So here she is at the feet of Jesus, and it's fascinating that Jesus does something that makes no sense to me. He stoops down. Now we know later in the passage, a couple verses later, Jesus says something. What does he say? He says this, if you have not sinned, you can stone her. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't say that right away? 
Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't say, oh yeah, go ahead and stone her? He does not do that. What did he do? He stooped down. How long was he stooping down is the next question. And the next verse, it said, they continued to pester him, continued to ask him. If you look at the word continue, it actually means to never prevail. It means to pester. It means to not stop. What's my point? As Jesus is stooping down, this woman is in front of him, and Jesus is drawing in the sand. Now, everybody's trying to figure out, what is Jesus drawing? I looked up on some commentaries, and they said, some scholars and theologians said he drew drawing, drawing the faces of the Pharisees. I'm like, I don't know how you came to that conclusion, but okay. I think he was playing tic-tac-toe with himself. I think like, dang it, I lost again. I think Jesus was doing something. He would draw, some people that he was drawing the line. Other people were drawing the law. Everybody had their own conclusion, but that's not really the most important thing. The fact that Jesus stooped down at that moment in time is fascinating to me. And he did it for such a length of time that they, they will continue to ask him the same question over and over and over. And all the while, Jesus is simply stooped down and he's drawing in the sand. And so you can imagine the frustration of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're frustrated. Jesus, answer the question. Can we stone this woman? Are you going to let us stone this woman? And Jesus stoops down. Let's ask the question, why would he stoop down? I want to propose to you, he was disrupting the momentum of condemnation that was aimed at this woman. He could feel it. He could sense it. Remember, Jesus was raised in this culture. Jesus had seen stonings happen before. He was aware of what these situations produced. He's seen it. He was raised around it. So he knew that centuries of condemnation, there were hundreds, potentially thousands of other women that were stoned because of this very act. This was normal. And the momentum of condemnation and judgment was about to be unleashed on this woman one more time. And Jesus knew it, and he thought, what can I do to stop this? And he does something so peaceful, so thoughtful, so full of composure and poise, and with precision, he stooped down. What did he do? He actually does it in such a way that it brings annoyance. They're frustrated at the fact that he won't answer the question. And Jesus continues to draw on the sand. Then finally, he stands up, and he says, okay, if you've never sinned, Go ahead and stone this woman. And then Jesus gets back down to stoop down and continues to play tic-tac-toe with himself. And one by one, they begin to leave the conversation. Why? Because they're convicted by their conscience. In verse 7, it said they were convicted by their conscience. And beginning from the older to the younger, they left. My Uncle Bob told me a story when, or told me, when I was, uh, he was my youth pastor. I don't know if my Uncle Bob been here, but he is six foot six. He is, he's about this tall. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at eye level with him right now. He is a big specimen. He is a big human being. 285 pounds. I don't know what that is in kilos, but just trust me, it's, it's a big man. And my uncle, he was my youth pastor. And you pretty much did whatever your youth pastor said, because he was just big. And he told me when I was like late teenager, he said, Eric, let me tell you a little bit about life. I said, all right. He said, when you're in your 20s, you think you know everything. You get in your 20s, you're like, man, I've got life figured out. I know exactly how things are going to work. And then you hit your 30s. When you get into your 30s, life hits you. 
And you begin to realize, I don't know if I know what I'm talking about anymore. I don't know if I've got life figured out. And then when you get into your 40s, you begin to realize, I don't know anything. Then once you're in your 50s and 60s and 70s, they pretty much just go downhill from there. I'm like, okay. And as an 18-year-old, I'm like, nah, I don't believe you. Well, I'm 42 now, and I'm like, totally right, exactly. In your 20s, you rule the world. You're like, I got everything figured out. In your 30s, you're like, oh my gosh, I don't even know what I know right side up anymore. In your 40s, you're kind of like, I don't even care anymore. This is whatever. This is just, anybody know what I'm talking about? So you know why the oldest guy left? Because he goes, yeah, I don't have anything figured out, and my life is full of mistakes. And for the, so when Jesus said, if you've never sinned, go ahead and leave, the guy that's 81 like, I'm out, see you guys later. <laughs> he has a way. He's like, I, I, my life is full of mistakes. The 60s and 70-year-olds like, yep, we're out too, see you guys later. I'm convinced the last guy standing was a 21-year-old kid. <laughs> He's like, nah, man, I got, I got every right. And he's got two stones. And finally, his mom, from a distant son, tell him what you did last night. Mom, be quiet. <laughs> and then finally, the 21-year-old leaves the conversation. Why would Jesus stop the momentum of judgment? You know how mobs are formed? Confusion. We live in a day and age in culture where mobs are formed with one post. We live in a day and age in culture where mobs are formed with one retweet. We live in a day and age where mobs are formed when you make a comment on someone else's post. And pretty soon you've got hundreds and thousands of people in this swirl of momentum and emotion and you'll find that most people are confused at why they're actually in the conversation. This actually took place in the book of Acts way before social media. There was a healing that took place and it caused such an uproar. It actually affected the economy of that day. And the people that were feeling the effect that their wallets were getting smaller and smaller began to realize, we can't have these healings anymore. So they began to create a mob. Pretty soon there's a mob of people that's wanting to kill some of the apostles. And in the middle of this mob, there's a verse that says this. And some of them were so confused as to why they were there. When your conscience is not at the forefront of your mind and you have given into momentum of judgment and condemnation, your conscience cannot be found. You're guided by something else. You're guided by the confusion of a mob. And Jesus knew that in this moment. He knew that culture was leaning in this direction the moment she was caught in the very act. And what did Jesus do? He does something to disrupt the momentum. A couple of years ago, I was in a gas station in Reading, and I would pay for my gas, and the card reader didn't work on the pump, so I had to go inside to pay for it. So I go inside, and, and I'm in line. There's like me, one other guy, and then there's one guy at the counter paying for something. And the, the man behind the counter was an Indian man. So his English accent, he, he, uh, his English language was broken, but you could understand him completely fine. And the guy that was buying something, who paying for something, was getting so agitated and frustrated. And he kept elevating his voice, get louder and louder, and he was getting more abrupt. And he started, you could tell, okay, something's about to happen in this, in this moment, in this gas station. And the guy behind the counter was an Indian man, and you could tell that he was kind of like getting really tender and like sensitive. And you could tell it was just one of those moments. And then the guy loses it. He just unleashes a string of words on this man and just rails them in, in the middle of the store. 
And I, and it's getting heightened. I finally had to step and say, hey, 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 what's going on here? And the guy looks at me and he gets all mad at me. I said, listen, you need to relax. You need to chill out. What's going on? And the guy began to just say, this guy can't even speak English. And they said a bunch of words that you shouldn't say. He can't even do it. He threw his money on the counter and stormed out of the store. You see, moments like that, you're called to disrupt. You're called to disrupt the momentum of something. We cannot sit idly by and just let these things take place. You and I are called to disrupt the momentum of something that could explode into a moment that you don't ever want to see. Are you guys with me this morning? Are you Brits with me right now? (laughs) So Jesus stoops down the second time and one by one, everyone begins to leave. They begin to leave the situation. And it appears when you read the story that Jesus never looked up. It actually appeared, the way that he communicates to the woman makes it sound like he never saw who was there and he never saw who left. He was so occupied with tic-tac-toe. I mean, he was so enthralled by this game. And he finally looked up and he looks at the woman. He said, hey, where'd everybody go? He said, I don't know. They're not here anymore. And then Jesus says something profound. He said, all right, go and sin no more because I don't accuse you. The only one that had the right to stone her, according to the New Testament, the New Covenant law, was Jesus. And that man, Jesus, decided, I'm not going to stone her. But I love what he does here. I want you to picture with me what he does. He actually creates a place of mercy. He creates a place of grace for this woman to actually sit within. He creates a context of protection and safety. But he doesn't not acknowledge the problem. And I think one of the challenges we have at church is we love to make sure everybody knows that they've sinned first. Well, Jesus does it the opposite. He creates a place of context of grace and mercy. And in the midst of that grace and mercy, he says, hey, I'm not going to accuse you and I'm not going to stone you. Don't sin anymore. He says something profound. And I think a modern day church, we're even scared to even say, hey, you shouldn't sin anymore. But Jesus does it in the right sequence, if you allow me to say that way. He does it in the right order. He creates a context. And I want to challenge you, Church Eastgate. I want to challenge you. We live in a day and age where it's very easy to throw stones. Why? Because when you're not connected to something, it's much easier to throw stones than judgment. We can sit at home, we can look on a social media feed, and we can make judgments and conclusions all day long. We do. We don't even want to admit it, but we sit there on our phones. And we scroll through Instagram and go, man, I can't. And we made the judgment call in someone's life. We conclude someone's life by a photo. Think about that for a moment. We judge someone based on a photo. We have no connection to the context. We have no idea what this person's life is like. Imagine Nicodemus. Nicodemus, he was the famous man, Pharisee, that went to meet with Jesus at night. Why? Because he was not about to do it in the daytime. If he went to Jesus in the daytime, what would have happened? He would have been excommunicated. He would have been ridiculed. He would have lost his position of influence. He would have lost his position of power. So he goes to Jesus at night. And the most fascinating thing about that story to me is that Jesus stayed up all night to hang out with Nicodemus. Why? Because the other time the Pharisees asked him a question, Jesus would say, no, I'm not talking to you. But why did he say yes to Nicodemus? Because Nicodemus actually was hungry. The other ones were trying to ask them a question to justify their own doubt. But Nicodemus was genuinely, legitimately hungry. So Jesus stayed up all night with this guy. 
And the largest question of the night would, how do you become born again? Nicodemus' theological mind, the only conclusion he could come up with, do I have to go back inside my mom? Is that how this born again thing works? And Jesus is like, and you're a teacher of Israel? And you don't know these things? Nicodemus wasn't just any Pharisee. He was actually in the upper tier of the Pharisaical leadership of that day. And so Nicodemus stayed up all night. I love the fact that Jesus allowed people to go to him at night when no one else was watching. Sometimes we all want a public confession of faith. That wasn't always the case with Jesus. Jesus was okay with it only happening when no one was looking. So I want to propose to you. I wonder how many stones we throw at people, but we have no idea if they've been with Jesus all night. So easy to pick on high-profile people and just throw stones at them from our living rooms, from our phone. We just we just ridicule them. We said, they're the Nicodemuses, or they're, they're the adulterous women. I can't believe the sin that they live in. We have no idea if they were previous night, they were up at 3 in the morning crying out to God. We have no idea. We, want to, we wonder why high-profile, influential people don't find their place in a church, because they can't. Because the church has been throwing stones at them for centuries. So why in the world would you go to a place where you're going to get stoned? You see, I believe the church is meant to be a place where forgiveness, where people go, that's where I can receive forgiveness. That's where I will be embraced and loved. That's where people will actually allow me to be me. But instead, the church has become a place where we just hold stones. We want to prove to everyone. And what the Pharisees were trying to do in this story, the adulterous woman, they were trying to use someone else's mistake to justify their moral high ground. One of the greatest mistakes we can make in the church is to use the world's mistake to show our moral high ground. Did you know that becoming a Christian was never meant to make you superior? But yet that's how we look at it. Man, I am I'm better than you. My moral high ground is higher than yours. My standards are higher than yours. The way I do life is higher than yours. And we walk around with this puffed up attitude. Of like, we just got it all figured out. Yep, you, are, you committed sin, and look at my moral high ground. Look at that. You, me, you, me. And we walk around with our Christian attitude with this approach. Did you realize that the Christian walk was actually meant to help you to serve humanity more than you were able to before? Imagine if the church actually learned to embrace this role, where our job is to disrupt the flow of condemnation and judgment. We should be the ones on social media. We should be the ones in the conversation saying, hey, that's not what we do. We are way better than this. I play basketball with a group of guys and uh, when somebody commits a foul, and it's like, it's like there's normal fouls, and then there's that foul that's like, dude, that was a dirty foul. One of the phrases we always tell each other, hey, you're better than that. Don't do that. And I want to challenge us today in Eastgate, hey, we're better than this. The church is so much better than what we've been known for. And why don't we set the standard even higher of what it's like to become a place of protection, a place of mercy, a place of grace, where an adulterous woman can come in the middle of her sin. And what does she experience? She experiences disruption of the momentum of condemnation and judgment. She experiences grace and mercy, and she experiences forgiveness, and she experiences conviction, all in the same breath. It's one of the most powerful stories in the gospel is that moment right there. So church, I have a challenge for you. Will you become a disruptor? Will you become someone that looks for the things that don't look like heaven? God wants us to disrupt anything that does not look like heaven. Why don't you stand? My closing statement is this. 
We live in a Genesis 3 world with a Genesis 1 blueprint with a trajectory to a Revelation 21 future. Let me say that again. We live in a Genesis 3 world. What's that? That's the fall of man. That's when sin entered the equation. But we have a Genesis 1 blueprint. What's that? The image of God taking dominion that all the kingdom of this world be, become his with a trajectory to a Revelation 21 future, which is that, the new Jerusalem, the new city. That's our, that's our assignment. That's our reality. So, Father, I pray for Eastgate that this very room, that this very house, the very lives that are standing in this room will become a place where people can come in and experience grace, mercy. They will experience disruption of condemnation. They will experience disruption of judgment, and they will experience your goodness, your love, your grace, your mercy. And so, Father, I pray for this room right here, that if any of us have stones in our hand, and if you show it when we pick up stones so easily in our lives, and I pray for every person in this room, everyone in this room will put their stones down and look for opportunities to disrupt, even when it looks like we're right, that we still disrupt anyways. And everybody said, Amen. 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 Bless you guys. Amen.